The text for our sermon this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 through 7. Hebrews 11, 4 through 7. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And through it, he being dead still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. This time I'd like to call our kids forward for the children's sermon. The verses that we just read tell us about three men, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. And these men were righteous in God's sight by faith. Remember last week we read that verse that says, the just shall live by faith? The word just means right in God's sight. So the verse means that a person is considered right in God's sight by having faith in God. And it really means that God covers our sins with the perfect life of Jesus so that when God looks at his children, he doesn't see them as the sinners they are in themselves, but as perfectly holy and obedient. God looks at his children and he sees Jesus. And the best part of that is that the faith we have in Jesus doesn't come from ourselves, but rather it comes from God as a gift of his love for us. When we hear the good news of Jesus being preached, the Holy Spirit creates faith in our hearts so that we trust in Jesus. These three men, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, are shown to us as examples of men who are righteous in God's sight by their faith. The way the Bible shows us this about Enoch, or about Abel rather, is that he offered a lamb for his sins. He understood that Jesus' blood is what saves us from our sins. So when he offered a lamb on God's altar, he was trusting in Jesus' blood to save him. The Bible says that God accepted Abel and his sacrifice. It means that God saw Abel as righteous by faith, and because he was righteous by faith, God accepted his offering. That's a very important lesson. God does not accept any worship or service from anyone who is not righteous by faith. And the way the Bible teaches us this about Enoch's faith is that it tells us that he walked with God. That means that he lived every part of his life knowing that God was with him and was watching him. The days in which Enoch lived were very evil days. So it would have been easy for Enoch to be just like everyone else. In the book of Jude, we read about a sermon that Jude preached. And one of the things Enoch spoke against when he preached was all the bad things people in his time said against God. People accused God of being unfair. And this was because God loved Enoch. Whenever the people of this world see God's love for his children, they hate them for it. The way the Bible teaches us about Noah's faith is that it tells us how he built 
the ark, which is a very, very big boat. Ask Colby or Morgan about how big the boat was. Last summer, they saw a boat, and it was made just like Noah's, and they can tell you how big it was. Noah built his ark because God told him that he was going to make it rain so much that the whole world would be flooded underwater. All the evil people in the world would be drowned. That seems like a very hard thing to imagine. So it must have been, it would have been very hard for Noah to do unless he really believed in God. And that's what the Bible tells us. God saw Noah as righteous, and this righteousness caused Noah to build an ark even though he had never seen rain. God didn't know how God would cause this to happen, but he believed in God. And the Bible says that in doing this, Noah condemned the world. That means that the whole world was judged as evil in God's sight. So evil, in fact, that God killed them. This tells us, obviously, how much God hates sin. And that when we see so much evil in the world, like we do in the days in which we live, we don't have to worry. God will save his people by bringing them into his church. The church is like the ark. When Jesus comes back and judges all the evil people and sends them to hell forever, those who are part of his church will be saved and will be with Jesus in heaven forever. Well, I want you to listen carefully to the rest of the sermon because we're going to talk more about these things. We'll pray and then you can return to your seats. O Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When a lawyer is building his case, he presents his strongest argument first, his strongest evidence first. And then he piles up a bunch of additional evidences to bolster the strength of his main evidence. The reason he does this is so that the jury can feel the weight of the additional pieces of evidence. If he stacked them up first, the jury might think that he's just presenting a bunch of uh, unrelated coincidences. But once that primary evidence is asserted and the relevance of the additional bits of evidence is established, then their cumulative weight is felt. We're at that part of the argument now in Hebrews. In the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, Paul is going to enter into evidence the faith of three men, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, as a demonstration of justification by faith. These are men who experience the favor of God because they look forward in faith to a yet unfulfilled promise. They were just men who lived by faith. Now what we'll do is we'll take the three points of our sermon and illustrate them in the lives of these three men. So our outline is, number one, these are men who were, quote, who were justified by faith alone. Men who, number two, experienced God's favor. And number three, they witnessed to God's righteousness. Firstly, they were men who were justified by faith alone. One of the core doctrines of the Bible is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Paul expounds it in Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, where he writes, 
And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So when those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Notice how Paul appeals to Habakkuk 2.4. He has just shown that those who have faith in Christ, who is the seed promised to Abraham, are justified by faith. Justification by faith is directly opposed to justification by works. Paul argues that justification by works is only possible if one obey the law perfectly. But since no man can obey the law perfectly, then no one can be justified by the law. We all sin in thought, word, and deed. If justification by, were by works, then we're all a thousand times doomed. In Romans 3.28, Paul says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now that word therefore is referring to two things. A, the impossibility of a fallen man perfectly obeying the law of God, and B, the very intention of God in giving the law. The purpose for which God gave the law was to show us our sin and thus cast us upon Christ for righteousness. So we need to bring those facts with us as we look at our text this morning. And when we look at the three examples given we see this justification by faith alone. In the case of Abel, we see his faith by his sacrifice that is recorded in Genesis 4. And to understand it properly, let's, let's set the table, so to speak. The very first sacrifice for sin performed, ever performed, was done by God himself when he slew lambs to clothe Adam and Eve. Now let me reiterate, the Bible doesn't explicitly say that God killed lambs to clothe Adam and Eve. However, we can safely assume that such was the case for a few reasons. First, when God teaches his people about sacrifice for sin, he commands them to offer lambs. We're just saying that God teaches by precept and by example. The first time we read of anyone in Scripture offering lambs as a sacrifice for sin, it's Adam and Eve's son, Abel, obviously, he didn't just invent this form of worship. Abel learned the proper way to worship. Finally, just before the account of Abel offering the lamb for his sin, we read of God killing animals to clothe Adam and Eve. When God clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of the animals slain for their guilt, he was preaching the gospel to them. When Adam taught Abel to offer lambs for his sin, Adam was preaching the gospel. Abel learned the proper form of worship, from his father, Adam. Well, what do we see in the first time sinners make sacrifices? The Bible tells us that Abel offered an acceptable offering of lambs from the herd, but Cain offered to God his own hard work and sought to be accepted by God because of his works. And it's very telling that Abel thought that he could forego an offering for sin. The expressions used in Genesis to describe the sacrifices of Cain and Abel are very striking. It would appear that there was a designated place for worship which was near to the entrance to Eden, but was now guarded by the cherubim. 
Also, we read that they came to worship, as the Hebrew says, at the end of days, which suggests that there was an established time for worship. We therefore conclude that it was the Sabbath. And they come with the first two offerings listed in Leviticus. So even at the very gates of Eden, we have a remarkably similar worship to that later codified in Exodus and Leviticus. The religion of fallen man has always been the same. And this is especially seen here that the way of approaching God has always been through blood. And the same blood, the blood of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Abel comes to God by way of the blood of the lamb. And this is what Paul means in Hebrews 12, 24, when he speaks of the, quote, blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel. He doesn't mean Abel's blood that was shed by Cain and which cried out for justice. Paul means the blood of Christ's sacrifices more effectual for cleansing than the blood which Abel shed in sacrifice. In Abel's sacrifice, we see him submitting to the righteousness of God, trusting in the shed blood of the designated substitute and living under God in virtue of that atonement. In Cain's act, we see the natural inclination of human nature to try to live according to the broken covenant. Cain thoroughly believed that he could approach God without sacrifice for sin. He attempted to come to God merely on the strength of his own merits. Scripture is also clear, and we said this in the children's sermon, that it was not Abel's sacrifice that God accepted first, but rather his person. And it is always this way. The acceptance of the person must precede the acceptance of his service, and the acceptance of the person is by faith. Abel typifies everyone who comes to God through the blood of Christ. Cable typifies, Cain typifies everyone who comes to God in any other way than by the suretyship of Christ. Abel had faith in the yet unseen atonement of Christ, and he exhibited this faith by offering lambs on God's altar. When we turn to Enoch, we see the exact same thing. The Bible gives us precious little information about Enoch, but what it does give us is sufficient to demonstrate justification by faith. The whole of Enoch's life is summed up in Genesis 5 in a grand total of 35 words in Hebrew. And the sole description of his life are the words, Enoch walked with God, which is repeated twice. The whole man's life, a total of 365 years, is summed up in four sentences, two of which are, Enoch walked with God. This, therefore, is the defining feature of his life. And in this sentence, we see justification by faith alone. Enoch believed in an unseen favor of God, in an unseen righteous governing of the world. Enoch is the greatest biblical example of trust in the providence of God. What is providence? Our catechism defines it as the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby as it were by his hand. He upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Enoch's age was incredibly wicked. In Jude, we read this prophecy of Enoch's. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, 
to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. In that one sentence, Enoch uses the word ungodly four times. This is the world in which he lived. And in the midst of rampant evil, not unlike the days in which we live, Enoch held fast his confession of hope. In an era when all seemed lost, in which moral evil seemed to rule the world, in which evil men and seducers waxed worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, Enoch walked with God. Like David in Psalm 73, he could say, when I thought how to understand it, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood their end. In a world where God's sovereignty seemed all but invisible, Enoch walked with God and enjoyed his favor. Enoch believed in an unseen favor of God. Noah's life teaches us this same lesson. As dark as the days of Enoch were, Noah's were darker. In the midst of an adulterous and perverse generation, Noah found favor with God. He held fast his confession and walked by faith, not by sight. Had Noah looked only at the wickedness of the world, he would have come to the same conclusion that David was tempted toward in Psalm 73. The wicked prosper and the saints suffer. But Noah believed in God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And the way the scripture teaches us this is by way of his obedience to God in building the ark. Noah had never seen rain. He didn't live anywhere near a large body of water, you know, one large enough to float the ark. And yet for a hundred years, he labored night and day, building the ark and preaching righteousness to any and all who would listen. It is not unlikely that in the early days, many people would have listened to Noah. He might have had hundreds help him with his building project. But as the days rolled into weeks, and the weeks rolled into months, and the months into years, the reality of this impending doom looked a lot less ominous. By then, even the most ardent of his original listeners would have been saying, Noah, come on. God is going to judge the whole earth with a flood. The only way to be saved is to get on my boat. Really, Noah? You've been saying your attitude is, is too judgmental. It's harming the church's witness. And when the years rolled into decades, they would have said, Noah, you're nuts. You've been saying this since before I was born. God's faithfulness is what sustained Noah. Do you think there's anyone who could withstand a hundred years of mockery? Apart from God preserving Noah's faith, he would have buckled under the pressure. God didn't throw Noah into an impossible situation and leave him to fend for himself. It was God's sustaining grace that upheld Noah's faith during a century of withering scorn. Noah's flood is a type of the final judgment. When God judged Noah's world, what was he doing but making the world a safer place for his people? He was washing away all of the wicked and per perverse influence. And the fact that the Bible brings this event up multiple times and the way in which it does so shows that the flood is merely a foreshadowing of the final great day of judgment. And Noah, the preacher of righteousness, was saved by way of the judgment of the wicked. Noah looked in faith to the unseen. By faith, he saw God's vindication of his own righteousness in the damnation of the wicked. And that brings us to our second point, that these three men experienced the favor of God. Now, in the case of Abel, 
It's seen in the regard that God had to Abel. Genesis 4, 3-5 says, Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Notice what I pointed out earlier. God had regard for Abel first and then to his offering. Likewise, God did not have regard to Cain, hence he had no regard for Cain's offering. This shows us that faith is what justifies a man, not his service, not his works. The offering of Abel had no more inherent efficacy than Cain's, simply considered as human acts of worship. But Abel believed, and through his faith, he received a justifying righteousness, even the righteousness of God in whom he believed. His faith was in the righteousness of the seed of the woman, who is the Son of God himself. Cain, because he did not accept or did not seek acceptance with God through justifying righteousness, was not regarded by God, and thus God had no respect to his offering either. God does not accept the worship or service of those who seek their salvation in any other way than through the righteousness and blood of Christ. In the case of Enoch, we see God's favor on him by his being taken out of this world so soon. The language of Scripture is intentionally ambiguous here in order to preserve some sense of mystery about what happened. We simply read, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. God, in his unfathomable mercy, took Enoch out of this world. And when you look at all the pre-flood generations or genealogies in Genesis 5, you'll see that men lived on average about 900 years. Enoch was taken to heaven at the age of 365. That's old by today's standards, but young by the standards of his day. Now, whatever the method was of God taking him, it was you know, roughly equivalent to dying early, and I want you to think about that. It may well be an act of mercy on God's part to take some of his servants in their youth. Enoch was spared the mental and spiritual anguish of witnessing the further degradation of society and the nearful collapse of the antithesis within the church. God spared Enoch a great deal of suffering by taking him to heaven so early. Noah experienced God's favor. When God killed Noah's generation, he was making the world a safer place again for his church. He was reestablishing the antithesis and washing away the wicked influences of compromise. The flood was a foreshadowing of the final judgment. Jesus states this several times in the gospel. We see that Noah, the preacher of righteousness, was saved by way of the judgment of God upon the wicked. Now, many people struggle with the concept of the coexistence in God of love and wrath. The heart of the problem is that we're inclined to begin with man rather than God, and therefore we can't imagine God doing anything we wouldn't do. The love and wrath of God are, in one sense, two sides of the same coin. His love for his people demonstrates the misery of the wicked, and his wrath on the wicked demonstrates the blessedness of his people. In fact, one could say that in the very act of wrath on the wicked is itself a demonstration of his love for the righteous. When God killed Noah's generation, he made the world a much safer place for Noah and his family. When God poured out the ultimate wrath for sin on his own dear son, 
he gave the most powerful demonstration possible of his love for the elect. And he also gave the most powerful demonstration possible of his hatred for the reprobate by withholding from them the atoning efficacy of Christ's sacrifice. Many of the unbelievers in Noah's day had heard the warnings and laughed them off. Many certainly had never heard Noah's warnings. They were so caught up in the life of the world, eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, so that they had no idea what was coming. Jesus said, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know, until the flood came and took them all away. Peter tells us that Noah was saved by water. It was the very act of God pouring out his wrath that saved Noah and his family. Likewise, we are saved by the death of Christ, wherein God poured out his infinite wrath against sin upon his own beloved Son, in whom he was well pleased. We now come to our third point, namely that these three men bore witness to God's righteousness. Abel bore witness to God's righteousness by offering the sacrifice ordained by God. He looked forward in faith to the seed of the woman who would bring in everlasting righteousness. But more to the point, Abel bore witness with his life, indeed with his own blood. The Greek word for witness is marturia, from whence we get the English word martyr. Abel was the first martyr for the faith. And this is important to see. The account from Genesis 4 makes it clear that Cain's hatred of Abel was in response to God's regard for Abel. Never forget this. Cain always hates Abel. Esau always hates Jacob. The scribes and Pharisees always hate Christ. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If I had not done among them the works which no one else ever did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Jesus explains that he and his righteousness are hated by those who want to come to God on their own terms. This shows us that Cain's hatred of Abel was only secondary. His primary hatred was for God. And you can see it in his arrogant interchange with God. Cain takes a very snarky tone with God, accusing him of injustice. Sinners know that they can't build a tower to climb into heaven and yank God off his throne, so they do the next best thing. They vent their hatred of God upon his church. As Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Now our experience in this country has lulled us, many of us, into a false sense of security. But let me assure you, the world does not love the church. For most of our lives, the church has had some clout in the public arena. But with the waning influence of the church is rising increasingly hostile opposition. And we're great fools if we don't sit up and take notice. We best be prepared. 
to be labeled hateful bigots, misogynists, homophobes, racists, or other meaningless slanders because that's what we'll be called for upholding God's law against a God-hating culture. If we compromise with evil and cave into the pressure in order to not be hated, they'll keep pushing. The methods of evil are always the same. As long as the tools work, they'll keep using them. Abel was killed because he was loved by God. He was killed for this testimony. But though being dead, he still speaks. Abel overcame by the blood of the lamb and by the word of his testimony. And he loved not his life unto the death. In Enoch's case, we've already seen how he bore witness to God's righteousness. His prophecy in Jude is bold. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all and to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I think we can safely assume that the world would have killed Enoch had God not taken him. And considering the fact that Paul mentions him here in the same breath as Abel, this is likely the Holy Spirit's intention. God doesn't always work the same way. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. He has his ways according to his infinite wisdom by which he disposes all things for his own glory. In the case of Abel, it was more fitting in God's infinite wisdom that Abel be killed for his faith. In the case of Enoch, it was more fitting in the infinite wisdom of God that Enoch be taken out of the world. And thus, his very disappearance bore witness against the ungodly that there had been a prophet among them. Noah bore witness to God, as our text says, by condemning the world, and he became the heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Notice carefully that the righteousness which is according to faith is not some novel thing lugged in here. It's already been applied to Enoch and to Abel. By faith, Noah becomes heir of this same righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ, the very righteousness of God himself, reckoned to the account of God's elect. I want you to notice a gradation here. Abel is killed for his faith. Enoch is taken by God before the ungodly kill him. And Noah testifies to God's wrath, condemning the world. As the powers of the world grow stronger in any nation, the witness of the church becomes stronger. Abel is killed. Enoch is rescued from being killed. And Noah rides the waves of God's wrath as they crash on the heads of the wicked. The church always bears one of these same relations to the surrounding world. We may die like Abel. We may be rescued like Enoch, or we may be saved by water. In all ages, the church is always, as Isaiah puts it, redeemed by judgment. We may have to seal our, our witness with our blood. We may be rescued from death, or we may be witnesses to an overwhelming flood of God's just wrath upon our generation. In whichever case pleases God, we are justified by faith alone, bearing witness to God's righteousness and holding fast our confession of hope unto the end. Let us pray.